and welcome to Lily High on Life with a fabulous guest that we've had before and I am always welcome, I'm always excited to welcome him back. Warren Wills, thanks for coming back. I am always thrilled to see your radiant, lovely self, Lily. <laughs> it's a great pleasure being here. And I am always overwhelmed by the not only amount of stuff that you do, but the caliber of stuff that you somehow manage to create. It really is truly awe-inspiring. Well, thank you. I, I, I love to say it's not taking a toll on me, but at the moment I feel like I'm being browbeaten. <laughs> and uh, can, can we have a few more days in the week, please, Lizzie? <laughs> Hours useful. in the day. That's it. Warren, launch in Tell us about some of the projects you're currently involved with. Well, my main focus um, has now been that my energy has been stolen away by the Eurasian world. And the first question, of course, is what in fact is the Eurasian world? Well, it's certainly not Eastern Europe. Eurasia is best known as Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Armenia, Mongolia. Uh, Central Asia, so that is Eurasia. Interestingly enough, as I've discovered this week, Israel is a part of Eurasia. Oh. But, but then I thought, well, if it's a part of Eurovision, it can be part of anything. So Israel is a part of Eurasia. Um, and I say that because I'm involved in the inaugural Eurasian Arts Festival. And it's happening here in December. We have a delegation, the government delegation coming up from Kazakhstan. We have Israeli, two Israeli writers. We have Aboriginal arts. I figured, although Australia is not really part of Eurasia, it's part of Eurovision as well. So we can give something back at the festival. But I go to Kazakhstan on Tuesday, of course, everyone does. And as I mentioned to you off air, um, I am sort of, I feel like I'm going into the, uh, the mouth of the shark. In as much as 120,000 Russians have already descended not for the same reason as myself, I hasten to add, uh, on Almaty. And interestingly enough, did you know last week, the biggest spiritual gathering on the planet was in Kazakhstan with the Pope, the heads of all organized faith. And the week before that, there was a meeting with Xi of China, Putin, all kinds of leaders from that area. So, and Kazakhstan hosted. So Kazakhstan is certainly um, going up, I think, in the ranks of a, of a hub of- uh, OMG. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That is astounding. I, it, that actually blows my mind. Yeah. Because it's such a, um, most people think of it as a tiny little place that's- Oh, eight hours to fly across it. Did you know that? No idea. Yeah, it's huge. And so we fly on Tuesday into Almaty. Now, I'm privileged. Now, you know how I can get very humbled by being in strange positions. We are part, we are the Australian delegation that I'm leading. And it's part of the Almaty Festival to honor a writer called Dulak Isabekov. And every day there is a different theater company performing. And we get there, there is a Turkish one we arrive, then a Georgian one. Then the Uyghur, and we only ever hear of Uyghurs being persecuted by the Chinese. So I'll be interested to see all these people. So in Uzbekistan, there actually a thriving 
community, free community? In Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan, sorry. Uh, 250,000, uh, perfectly at liberty, perfectly free, perfectly integrated. So I look forward to uh, finding more about that. And we close the festival on the last day of the festival, and there's a reception, and the president of Kazakhstan comes. Wow, that wow. is a really big deal. It is a big deal. So that'll be an interesting week. And then the company that I'm with, they hot foot it back to Melbourne, but I head off the other direction because I then, with a different cast, um, do a same boutique presentation of this new piece about Borte, which I will tell you about in a minute, uh, and that is at the Kazakh Embassy in Pall Mall in London. Um, again, there's a new ambassador there, and it's going to be great. I know the um, I know the Kazakh Embassy quite well, funnily enough, in London, and it's beautiful, and I get to see my granddaughter. <laughs> and then I come back here, and then we do the world premiere of a piece called Borte, Empress of the World, which I'm really excited about because every time I speak to people, it's kind of like, isn't it great to do something where a woman, a powerful woman with opinions who historically was part of the biggest empire in the world until the British Empire. What I didn't know, what I didn't know, if I say to Shingis Khan, most people say, well, tribes, feuding, conquering, did you know the first postal service in the world was developed by Chinggis Khan? I did not. Post, the post. Um, there's so many legacies and achievements. What I find particularly interesting about script is in a current climate where, and you may go look at what's happening in Iran, where women's rights in so many places are virtually back in the Stone Age. I mean, it's... But I... I had never heard of Borte, mm -hmm. so just fill some other people who may not be as well interesting. Well so absolutely, because the first thing I said, we can't call a piece Borte in Australia. They say you Borte that here, and I sold it over there. So I said, what we'll do, we'll call it Borte Dash Empress of the World. She was the childhood sweetheart and long-suffering wife of Chinggis Khan, which is the correct pronunciation, and very feisty, very opinionated, but very truthful, full of integrity, courage. I mean, quite incredible, devoted. And in fact, he was somewhat of a, um, a genius when it came to, um, to military strategy, to military tactics, and a lot, of, uh, a lot has been carried on. But she also uh, would go out and do things on the battlefield, which were quite amazing. It is a, a fascinating story. But more than that, isn't it nice to be able to do something under the banner of music theatre, where here we are in Australia, working with a whole bunch of people uh, who come from a land that we know nothing about to a certain extent, mm. to have my cohort there, who are going to be courtesans and warriors and feuding Mongols and tribal Chinese and God knows what else, um, and that's the Young World Choir. And all of this happens as part of the Eurasian Arts Festival in a Greek place, and I tell you, this place, it's called Arcadia House. Now people, listen up, this is great. Every now and again, you come across your place, you think, oh my God, it's an undiscovered treasure. A little bit like Amar, where you've been to. Which, yes. Which is a beautiful ballroom, it's beautiful. Okay. It's a beautiful mansion in Turak. Correct. Amar, and it is rented out now for functions. Correct. All kinds of things, and I was amazed. I'd never seen it before you introduced me. It, it, but a jewel, an undiscovered jewel. Yes. Now, Arcadia House is owned by what I would describe as the captains of Greek industry, and they're great. And very similar working ethos, I think, as the Jewish community, to be honest. 
and they have a building and it's right near Victoria Market, it's right near North Melbourne Town Hall. It's in Victoria Street, it's called Arcadia House. The two people that I'm dealing with are absolute guns. They're fabulous Greek entrepreneurs. She is an architect and I, and I said, so what are you working on at the moment? I'm building a cricket stadium and a basketball centre for the Commonwealth Games 2026. And he is, he's a real high flyer, um, his name is John Dimitropoulos, and huge commendations to both. But the, this venue is extraordinary, I'll tell you why. First of all, the main, you go in, the main performing space in there is a 1920s Art Deco 400 seat ballroom, which is amazing. At the back is an enormous kitchen, fully equipped to feed, and they do it functions, 400 people. Wow. Wow. First floor is a smaller version of that. There is a room uh, where you can get about 150 people in, fully equipped kitchen. Next floor, same thing again. Smaller room, about 100, but fully equipped kitchen. Now, for someone like me who wants to create a hub and put the Eurasian Arts Festival on, you can have a book launch on that level, you can have dancing on that, you can have cookery on this level, and films on that, it's fantastic. So we are doing the Eurasian Festival there. When it started out, I was under the impression with my organizers, who is the roaming ambassador of Eurasia, who set us all up, I thought, okay, it's gonna be a lot of kind of Kazakh stuff. Then we had Israel turned up with a delegation. Then because it's a Greek place, there's gonna be a Greek delegation. I have friends from Spain, they're coming over so they set up a Spanish delegation. There is an amazing guy with a gallery, his name is Hans Sip. He represents Aboriginal art right up north, Lockhart I think it's called, it's 800, 800 k north of Cairns. I thought that was New Guinea, I had no idea that the country even went on that far. Anyway, he showed me this art that blew my mind. So he's going to set up a whole Aboriginal stand there as well. So this is not just a Eurasian arts festival. This is kind of like a, a mini world expo, which is great. And if it's an ideal venue. I'm terribly thrilled about it. It's the inaugural one. And at some point, all I'm thinking, ah, the other thing, that's it, because we've got the Israelis. I spoke to the, um, the Australian Arab Chamber of Commerce, of course. Uh, and they said, can I get my friends, my Arab friends to come over? So that is in negotiation at the moment. So let's see where it lands. It's a six day festival. It's happening on December the 10th to December the 16th, the Eurasian Arts Festival at Arcadia House. And center in front, the centerpiece is Borte, Empress of the World. That sounds like an absolutely unbelievable project that is so multifaceted and deserves its own television production as oh, well. Oh, listen, I hope so. Last night, two o'clock in the morning as one does, I'm zooming, I'm zooming the foreign minister of Kazakhstan about various issues over here. But it's, listen, it's very exciting. And I've got to tell you something about the design, which I'm very pleased about. I thought, why don't we create an experience? Because we can, it's such a large ballroom. So what's going to happen? The audience, if you like, are going to be part of the royal party of Borte and Chinggis Khan. So we are all in the Grand Yurt, or the Grand Marquis, Grand Shabin, Grand Tent, whatever you call it, together. So in the center of the room will be a grand piano. Lots of drapes and everything on top of it, and that is the inner sanctum of the royal family. All around, there'll be seats, but there'll be cushions, and there'll be, so people can 
lie on the floor. They can sit on pillows. They can sit on chairs. But it's in the round. So we're all there. Theatre in the round. But we're all in the court. We're all in the grand years. And the Young World Choir also will also be there serving food, um, getting involved with um, conquering in tribal stuff, being courtesans, singing, acting and so on. So it should be a fabulous experience anyway. And for those that have not heard of your unbelievably fabulous Young World Choir, mm -hmm. could you just please uh, tell the audience exactly what now? Well, we started 20 years ago in London in a place called Haringey, when I thought, wouldn't it be nice for people who are privileged enough to work in the West End, wouldn't it be nice to give something back to the community? So we did what were called uh, collaborative world premieres of new musicals every year. And I did it with children's theatre and youth theatre. But the thing about it that made it particularly interesting is a third of the company were what I would call special needs kids, and that's everything from spina bifida, cerebral palsy, autism, deafness, blindness, and so on. A third of what I call at-risk kids, homelessness to domestic violence, young offenders, alcohol abuse, etc. And a third, for want of a better term, were mainstream kids. Mainstream kids had never worked with young offenders. Kids with spina bifida, cerebral palsy had never been on a stage and danced and choreography with mainstream kids. It was fantastic. And then it grew. So it grew from there and it ended up becoming adults. So it became intergenerational, multi-faith, multi-ability, multi-everything. And we love it. We love it. And you've seen it. And, you, and Lily, you have been such a fabulous supporter of this work. Oh, so thank how you. could you not? So thank how you. How could you not? And Melbourne has its very own choir, as do different places in the world, like London has continued, and I'm sure wherever you Absolutely. go. What, what's interesting here, this was the first time, listen, every time we do I don't plan anything, things happen. And you know, you have a high degree of um, what are called um, neurodiversity. Here we go, I used to think it was called mental health issues. I have been wisened, the correct terminology is neurodiversity. Of course, but neurodiversity means mental health issues. Just to, just so people don't get. Confused. I try to. Get, I try to keep up. But we'll be politically correct. But well, from my viewpoint, it was interesting because we have a quite a high percentage in this in this cohort do have quite serious issues. In addition to which, it's the first time I've actually had a a strong representation from the blind community. Mm. It is fantastic, the dedication, the love that they put into the room, and also the response and reaction from the rest of the group, particularly young people who then are empowered with a degree of responsibility. The whole thing is to create a safe, loving, welcoming environment, free from bullying, free from ostracizing, free from any of that. And it works, it really does. And it showcases so wonderfully because you're not looking at or listening to a choir that you're saying, oh, isn't that lovely? And you're not, you don't need to be condescending about it because they're not all mainstream. They really do an excellent professional job. And they love it, and they love it. You know, um, we were talking about the other day, there's a, a lovely lady who comes whose name is Jen. And Jen comes, she's in a wheelchair, and she has had a stroke. So her body is a bit of a wreckage, but my God, the the soul and the spirit and the, the brain are perfect, perfect. She also has Parkinson's and uh, we had a situation where she was saying to me, and she contributes to everything, she's adorable, and she said, oh, can I change her battery? I then discovered, oh, you learn something every day, she has a battery uh, that is for people who have Parkinson's and epilepsy, it's a neurobrain deep brain stimulator. Wow. 
and Australia is one of the pioneering countries for it, but it, uh, it had run out after I think three years and she was in a bad way. Suffice to say, uh, I am good with my hands, but when someone says, can you change my battery? I wasn't expecting to be that kind of battery. Hence, she saw a neurologist, she changed it and she's amazing, she's transformed. Her friend who brings her comes from Geelong and they, they don't miss a beat and they're fantastic. And you think, wow, isn't it nice that people can feel that they're part of something, they feel loved, they feel recognized, they're in a group, it's good for their self-esteem, for their confidence. That's how the whole world should be. And God bless you. But you're not... (laughs) You'd think the Eurasian Festival would have been enough. You'd think Bought on its own would be enough. Mm. You'd think the Eurasian Festival would be Mm. enough. You'd think just the World Choir might be enough. Mm. But it's not for you. You you still have other projects pending. There's a a few other projects pending. There is a few other projects pending. And uh, we'll have to see how it all goes. I mean, again, I'm very keen. Um, Do you know what? Since since the house arrest, the incarceration that we're all forced under, the world has changed. And you'll find that uh, particularly like producers don't want to take the same risks. There's a little bit more apprehension. And the the, the knock-on effect now of cancelling and failure is just, it's shocking. You know, even that um, when people have to put things on and it's cancelled. I had a friend, he's a beautiful man, Mike Garson. And for those David Bowie lovers, he was uh, David Bowie's musical director for 50 years. He's a genius. And it has an alumni band. It's all musicians who play with Bowie and they tour the world and it's sensational. And I saw them here at the Palais and I've seen them in London. Three hours of the best of Bowie. He had to cancel, I can't remember what it was, 72 gigs, he had his own money in it, and it's like, that's it, he's not gonna tour again, it's like, never again, I can't. It's just, it's become too, listen, it will change, but I get it, it's become so dangerous, there's been so much jeopardy and risk attached to it now, but hopefully, hopefully we are getting back on it. So people are, aff- people are afraid to come out because they're afraid of COVID? Is that what it's it's, it's more than that because if you are if you're a producer and you're thinking you're going to pay for a cast of twenty, you now have to pay for a cast of forty because if anyone that cast comes down, the whole cast go off. You bring it; it's so expensive and it really puts people off putting on right. shows now. This is the problem. Um, a friend of mine is putting uh, is putting Joseph on at the moment, and when you have a show with kids, you have to have two pools of kids anyway. Because it's touring Sydney, so there's four pools of kids and it's kind of rehearsing over the holidays and it's in a vacuum there. And you kind of think, listen, it's great and it's selling well, but what a lot of effort, what a lot of energy. So I can see, you know, there's a certain reticence. Given, and listen, in addition to that, I don't have to tell you, um, you've only got to look at what's going on in Europe to see that uh, it's changing every day. It's changing, major. And it's, what about over in London where you were spending half your time? Do you know, here's a funny thing, and I don't mean this unkindly at all. The two greatest moments of, of love and of unity this year were the Queen's Jubilee and the outpouring of respect and love when she died. Totally. The rest of the year uh, has been a real S show. I can't say what I want to say, can I? But in London, it has been, it's been terrible, that aside. It's been a disaster. Um, and for so many reasons, so many reasons. And in fact, I don't know if you saw the, the new girl who came in, Liz Truss, I don't know if you saw this, I don't want to get political. First of all, she's elected Prime Minister. She's, she's a bit player because it's all about the Queen. 
finally, when she gets to do something, she's done an immediate U-turn. It was a disaster. There was a run on the panel. It was a disaster. So um, anyway, having said all that, I'm thrilled to go, thrilled to go and be in London and uh, catch up with everyone. So what does that feel like, finally being a grandfather? This is my third time. Oh. Oh, yeah. In fact, funnily enough, the last time I was in London, I was the first time because of the whole Zoom phenomenon and being in lockdown that my granddaughter, who was two, I only saw her birth and then on Zoom from here. So her name is Maya and I taught her very carefully to say, don't forget your bag, Dad, because that's where I was going. <laughs> and so she said, Granddad, what's up? Don't forget your bag, Dad. <laughs> and of course, that was another adventure this year, which is a... Um, that was this year too, my gosh. That was three months ago. I mean, it seems like five years it ago. It does seem like five seems years like ago long, you've done it so much. It was April, maybe, yeah. Just quickly tell us a little bit about the Baghdad trip. <laughs> I was at my daughter's wedding in London and next thing I know I'm in bed with COVID and I think a whole, the whole trip is wasted when the phone goes, Mr. Willis, we understand that you are in London, would you like to come to Baghdad? And I said, well, um, how exciting, the cradle of civilization, <laughs> the Euphrates, the River Tigris, for, and particularly for, for people who are Jewish. I mean, how many people have families who are starting Baghdad and Abraham? And I said, well, this is interesting. I said, I'll go online and have a look at what the Australian government website says about this and it says if you're Australian and you happen to be in Baghdad at the moment leave immediately or you'll be kidnapped or killed so I called them back and I said um, just be on the website uh, doesn't look very promising do not believe the Western media do not believe we're all over here anyway I thought about it I thought listen I'm not going as a Westerner I'm not going as a, an American military contractor I'm going as a guest of honour of the most beloved musical act in Baghdad who hasn't been there for 20 years and she's homecoming. I had a fantastic time. And Good was, on you for going, for God's sake. It was amazing. I mean, what an opportunity. Feel the fear and do it anyway. We well, what love an opportunity. That. And to, to be the, you know, the guest of honor, the token white male, Western Jew, whatever, on stage uh, at the National Theatre of Baghdad, where there hasn't been a show for 15 or 20 years, thousands of people there Iran, 20 musicians people weeping it was so moving it was wonderful and do I remember correctly that you were actually introduced as a Jew wasn't I was introduced as that now I, I became that was a time before um, and I said oh you know we, we're very, this was in Jordan in Amman and we were guests of the royal family so we're on stage and the crown prince comes up and the king's there and all the rest of it Anyway, so Ilam starts to talk about this Australian Jew, blah, 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 and goes on in Arabic, I don't speak Arabic. And after about five minutes, he looks over my way and says, you're now an honorary Jordanian. And I thought, how nice, isn't that nice that in this world, whatever people think there are their differences, that we can find all this commonality and then we can all, you know, it's how nice. Some people can just make it happen. So you are one of the few people I know that has been to Baghdad, Amman, Riyadh, um, Cairo, Beirut, and and work there, and work there, and be Jewish there. Be Jewish, and everyone absolutely fine about. Because I'm not doing anything except music, and people love music. It but, transcends. You know what I mean? It's great. But you know what else? It's like people's. Um, Hatreds mm. are passed on to their children. For sure. 
the, they just are, and that's a fact. Mm. And yet, in this venue, in this type of forum, whereas they would normally skin you alive as a Jew, you were welcomed, accepted, and it was all good because they were, my theory is, they were happy, they were thrilled, they were in a positive environment, and it's within that kind of positive environment that everything and anything is possible. Correct, absolutely. So you have more people hugging, hugging, kissing and loving each other Mm. rather than threatening and hating on each other. And the world gets a whole lot better really quickly. I, I found it really interesting for lots of reasons being in Baghdad. First of all, I couldn't believe that I was standing on the bridge over the River Tigris. I mean, I mean, how exciting. And I was standing on there and the accountant is a Palestinian accountant in the band. I mean, isn't this what should go on in the world that, uh, that a Jewish musician, a Palestinian accountant should be standing together on the, on the bridge of the River Tigris? I mean, isn't that what we should be doing? So there was some really wonderful things about it. It was also very interesting. People all made the point. They said, um, and it's very true, it's very sad the way the world works on this level. They said, um, oh, uh, you know, do you know how many foreign journalists there are at the moment in Kiev? I said, there's a lot. And they said, yeah, there's about a thousand. Do you know how many foreign journalists there are in Baghdad? None. And it's this whole thing. All of a sudden, we love, we love the Ukrainians. We want to adopt them. We want to adopt them. We want to adopt them. And then the news cycle will get tired of it and it'll go somewhere else. And suddenly, the Ukrainians or the Russians, like the Iraqis, etc., etc., and we forget about these people. And you can't, you can't, you can't. It's difficult to be mindful of everyone. And we kind of we live on a constant news cycle, and we go where where the pack goes, I guess. So it was very interesting to hear that because I was saying, you don't hear many people wanting to offer, you know, wanting to adopt an Iraqi family or something. And, and it's true, it's true, it's not fashionable. Yes, I mean, right now, even bringing Australians and Syria back, mm. women and children, is an issue. Mm. And I understand both sides of the fence. Mm. But to get off politics once again, mm. you also had a wonderful Ukrainian project you were involved with. Lily, 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 if I had, I'm not being funny about this, if only, if only I had more time or energy. This is the project and it's fantastic. If any of the listeners want to get involved with this, they must contact you. This this is a real game changer. Okay. The guy who was the arts editor of the Moscow Times for 30 years, he and his Ukrainian wife, and let's let's get very serious here. Russia being at war with Ukraine is like Victoria being at war with New South Wales. It's ridiculous. Everyone in Ukraine has Russian family and vice versa. It's crazy. So he and his Ukrainian wife went to Crete just before the lockdown because they could see, as he said, dark clouds were gathering. People kind of had an inkling what was coming. So, and once, once the S hit the fan, he said, okay, what we're going to do, we're going to do something to really profile um, Ukrainian art and particularly it was uh, literature. So they have this whole project now, it's a, a Ukrainian initiative organized by these people in Crete and my friend John Fand in London now, who is the Royal Literary Fellow of Britain and the most published living author, John Fanden, F-A-R-N-D-O-N. Now, so what they do, they've got all these plays that were written 
in the last two or three months by the top Ukrainian playwrights. Wow. In basements, bomb shelters, subways, wherever they could rise, okay? 70 countries are involved with the project, doing it in Finnish, doing it in French, etc., etc. Seven zero. Seven zero. In London, the I was reading, John sent me the reviews, it's the hiss of what's on the stage in the West End. It's an absolute smash. People say, it's like, wow, an insight into this current what's going on, but not from a news perspective, but from a culture, a literary perspective, to so have, you know, an insightful writer actually present a play about what's going on. Anyway, they've sent me about six plays, and I was delighted to, to find Ukrainian choirs, and in my own young world choir, I thought we're going to do something, there's no political agenda, zero, but we're going to do something to be part of this initiative. I then discovered recently, you might know more about this than me, that in Bentley, once a month, 160 Ukrainians uh, recently arrived. The last two months I was supposed to go and talk and stir them up and spruik them up and everything. Unfortunately, I wasn't here, I was away in Sydney. I won't Next be here. one is the 23rd. I won't be away. here. Yeah. But I will be here in November and we will do it. And we have to, Lily, we have to make this project happen next year. It's too good a project. It's such a great idea. And uh, I'm assuming or would hope that somebody is collating all of this from the 70 countries and oh, God, yeah. putting it together on a piece of There are so many video. links. And when they start to do, um, and I've been in some of the loops, there's like hundreds of people and email addresses from people all around the place. But Lily, we must make this happen next year. We must. I just haven't had a chance. And I can't do the heavy lifting myself. So we need yep. some of your listeners. It's a great project. And also, you started doing monthly performances, which you will continue once you're back and mm -hmm. once the Eurasian Festival is done. And please, please, please contact me, lilyhighonlife at gmail.com, if you would like to be on the email list and Absolutely. hear all about Warren's projects because. I know of at least three or four more that just don't come to mind because he's got other things, as you can see, on his mind. But he's always so involved. And these musical soirees that he does once a month just take you away to another time and place. And they are just totally uplifting. Oh, thank you. No, I love it. And also, it's a great chance. It's, it's not... I've kind of had my dash where, yeah, oh, you're going to do a concert, so yeah, I'm going to sit there and play for three hours. Let's bring the choir on. Let's bring some guest singers on. Let's bring other pianists on. I think you've been there when uh, the fabulous Alan Pogosovsky's oh. there. The world, I mean, he's a treasure. He's a national treasure. This I'm man, incredible. this man, in my opinion, is one of the greatest living show pianists, right? And I know, oh, classical music, like this, that, and the other. Again, listen, to have the privilege and pleasure to be able to have someone that play in one of these concerts. So, yes, tell your listeners to come along. No, sure. no, Alan Kogosovsky, mm. when he plays, mm. you're talking on somebody who, about somebody who's commanded the world stage in classical music. Absolutely. And when his fingers touch those keys, mm. it's not as though you're in the here and now. It absolutely moves you to places you've emotionally never been before. And 
I don't exaggerate anyway, mm. and this is not an exaggeration. I I travel. I even travel to Brunswick to hear Alan Kogelsowski. Right, right. I joke about it, but it really he's. He's just really sensational when it comes to that. And as with you, you're an entertainer as well as a composer, as well as a producer, as well as being able to do all these amazing things that you do. You are the consummate entertainer. Well, thank you. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that next year it will be a lot of traveling. And in fact, there is a move and this is through the Australian Arab Chamber of Commerce to do a 26 country tour and it's going to be all around the Middle East and Central Asia and I hope that we can help with the Eurasian Arts Festival to be a springboard for this that what we can do is have Israeli acts, have Arab acts, Australian acts all on the same bill. This is what I'm hoping. Uh, which Wouldn't that be fun? And let's go and do like a 26 country tour with grace. Yeah. Warren, I've got to ask you hmm. Are you aware of how different you are to most people in terms of your energy and in terms of your passion and what you do? Uh, I was very lucky because I didn't have a choice. I've mentioned this before. A lot of people choose what they want to do or, in fact, when they're young, have issues because they don't know what to do. From the time I heard Chopin when I was four, I want to be a composer, I want to work music. So it's never been work for me, it's always been a pleasure, and I've always been compelled to do it. So it's never struck me as being anything different or unusual. Though, I gotta say, because there is a massive fraternity in the West End, you feel that you're part of this, this big fraternity and brotherhood and family and all the rest of it. When you come here into Melbourne, because there are less people doing the kind of thing I do, you kind of think, yeah, the people say, yeah, it's good. It's good for a hobby, but you mean you know you've got to consider a proper job, particularly from a Jewish background. It's kind of like, what, what are you doing with, with music and everything? Which is bizarre because the Jews were the greatest musicians, still are. Arthur Rubinstein, Isaac Stern, Ixar Perlman, we can go through it, you know, but it's, yeah. But if they weren't paid the same way other people were paid. Mm. But let me tell you, doctors are no longer paid the way IT people are. Can I tell you, the tradies in UK, that's where the money is. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. 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 So it's, mm. have, do you, apart from when you had COVID and it mm. knocked you out, mm. do you ever just take a day off? I can't. I can't. And I, I, I don't want to sound ridiculous about it. There is so much like right now, there is so much that has to happen for all these events to happen. And of course, they're all in different time zones. Uh, and if you want the job done, do it yourself. Yes. Yeah, but of course you can delegate once things are up and running. But um, at the moment, I'm rehearsing someone in a vacuum in London because it's a different cast. We're, we're buying costumes in, um, in Kazakhstan. I'm on the phone last night to the foreign minister to try and sort stuff out with flights from Kazakhstan. Oh, it's ridiculous, but um, it's great. I love it. Um, I'm sure you've, you must have tried at some stage to have a personal assistant or a, somebody that you can delegate to. Love it. And particularly, listen, on occasion, I'm talking here now, um, on occasion, it was great. Do you know when we did uh, Night of Broken Glass the first time at Australian Catholic University, because it was under the, uh, under the wing of ACU and the president of ACU, uh, Father Anthony Casamento, and the vice chancellor took it on as a project. So I had three professors to work with. I had 160 uh, undergraduates to work with. 
What a joy, what a joy. If only people at all the time. Yes, it is certainly worth attaching oneself to these institutions. Funnily enough, I met a designer who's at RMIT and it's too soon for RMIT to make a commitment to come on board. But I'm hoping that RMIT will come on board uh, next year and actually with a whole design department. Uh, it will be audiovisual and the cameras and art and all the rest of it, which will be nice. And you are planning to do Night of Broken Glass again. Now, for anyone who is interested, we want to start rehearsals in March next year. So please, lilyhighonlife at gmail.com. I will pass on to yeah. Warren and uh, we'll get you up working and involved. Now, I must say, and again, this year, in both from our Crystal Nacht community, we've seen a lot of people wave goodbye to us. And in our Indigenous community, um, you saw what happened last week with Uncle Jack Charles. Uh, Jack Charles, who again, great friend of mine, a great friend of the work that we do. Jack Charles, actor extraordinaire, 79 years old, lovable rascal, quite an extraordinary character. And uh, state funeral for him on the 18th of October, I won't be here, for Jack Charles. And a Yorsha Yorsha man uh, had a stroke, died. Um, but I tell you what, I'm, I'm not being funny about this. I, I was thinking the other day, this is before the Queen passed away. I was thinking, oh my God, Gorbachev, such an influential figure, Olivia Newton-John, Judith Durham. And, and then you say that to people, once the Queen had died, everything else seems like it's months ago. Everything else pales into insignificance now, doesn't it? Yes, I mean, the amount that you've done in the last 12 months mm. pales into significance <laughs> into each other. Um, it's, you know, so who are your uh, icons and your heroes and people that you look up to and, and, and see as leaders for yourself? Well, so many, so many, but they're all they're primarily people from the arts. I mean, I find it very interesting, for example, I'm involved with a project called LVB, which is about Beethoven. And what's really interesting is we're using Beethoven's own music to be the soundtrack of which the lyrics were used for, which is such a clever idea. And by the way, if this works, you could do this on any composer, and it's such a brilliant way to get young people who like musicals and theatre but might not be hooked on classical to get them into it. It's very You're cool. writing lyrics for classical. I'm not writing it, someone else is writing it, but I'm putting the whole shebang together. And very exciting, I'm very excited about it. Now, you look at someone like Beethoven's life, and I find it fascinating for so many reasons. First of all, here's a man who, who must have spent so much of his time composing, but he also spent so much of his time producing. Now, not a lot of people know that. He was an entrepreneur. He had to put his own pieces on because no one else was going to do it. Really? So he went to Vienna and he paid. So he would pay. So, for example, there was a night where they had the most remarkable thing in history. He did the Fifth Symphony world premiere, the Sixth Symphony, the Fifth Piano Concerto, and a big vocal piece all the same night because he had to get everything done as quickly as possible and people were still complaining that the violins weren't so good because the best players were, were pre-booked to go and do something else because he, he paid for it all himself. Wow. Wow. So you, and this, you think, my God, so he's contending with the fact that he's got to compose full-time and he's got to produce. Then he's contending with such poor health, as you know, but also, worse than that, he had an ongoing litigation, I don't know if you know this, over his nephew. Once his brother passed away, 
Beethoven's sister-in-law, he called the queen of the night, queen bitch. He spent three years not composing because he was in court, fighting her over custody to get uh, custody of his nephew, Carl. Interestingly enough, here's another one for you. People say, oh, Beethoven, he died of this deafness. He had so many things wrong. <coughs> one of the interesting things in Vienna at the time, people like to drink wine and they like to sweeten it with lead sugar, lead. I've never heard of that. Mmm, lead sugar. And they used to have a weight and they used to put it and they used to put it right in the wine and it was lead with sugar and it gave us a particular taste. So, well, you can imagine if you spent your whole life drinking lead sugar, it ain't gonna do you any favors, is it? So, wow. yeah, it's all kinds of theories now as to why he died. But I, I now that I've heard about this lead sugar thing, check it out, check it out. It's, I'm, I'm blown away by the, the story you just told because I, one of the things that I've been saying to everybody to listen is that it's so easy to be an entrepreneur these days mm -hmm. because of all the technology. You can mm -hmm. do your own filming, you can do your own recording, you can do your own thing. I mean, this is the time. And now you're telling me that people who are true entrepreneurs found ways to do what they needed to do on their own. Well, if, you can, if you can imagine the hours it would take to write a symphony that Beethoven's working on. Yes. And at the same time, he's giving lessons because he wants to keep the, you know, the coffers and he's got patrons, certain rich people are, are supporting him. Then he decides to go put a concert on. So he puts it on. He is the entrepreneur, he's the producer. It, mind blowing. Absolutely boggles the mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So take a deep breath for a minute. How do you see yourself and your life at the moment where are you right now what are the things that you're thinking about in terms of not just I mean you, you've got plans for your career and everything else but this introspection thing which is Warren Wills the man after everything you've already done after everything that you've really accomplished what is it right now what are the lessons you've learned out of your life thus far, being a father, being a grandfather, coming out of COVID, doing the projects that you're doing. What are those insights that really you've learnt and maybe not even verbalised before? Well, there's a few things here. And first of all, I could really appreciate that um, for people who do work in the arts, and they are very lucky when they're, when they're working. So clearly there's a lot of unemployment. For people who work regularly, you know, you go and do a show, Judy Dench, you're getting fabulously paid to do two hours a day. I mean, it's nothing. So it, it does seem to me a logical thing that we should be doing things like socially inclusive music theatre. There are so many people, through no fault of their own, who find themselves on the margins, on the periphery of life. Surely, you know, you say, what, what does one want to do? Well. Let's just try and do what we can for the world. Let's try and it's not difficult. But when you see and meet so many people, mm. from what I've experienced, you're totally non-judgmental. Mm. But how do you feel about populations now? How do you feel about people? What does what do you think when you are introduced into new categories of people like the Greeks, for Very example? Very good. Funnily enough, I'm glad to say that. Um, I hate to think that. My curiosity, my lust and passion for learning had come to an end. And I can remember the first time I worked with this oud player, Ahmed Mukhtar in London, he's a great player. 
I have no issue, no issue of being, confessing my stupidity. If I know nothing, I put my hand up and I ask questions. What happens that truth? You don't ask, you'll never know. And then when I um, started to work with the, um, the Arabats, I started, I didn't even know the name of the instruments. Now, I'm exactly the same. I have the same opportunity again with the Kazakhs. All these instruments, I have no idea. This is so exciting. I'm like, yeah, I'm like a kid in a candy shop. Wow, what is it? What, what? I love it. When that all dries up and stops, for me, that will be a very sad day. And even, you know what, even so, we went to the recital center here about three or four weeks ago, Chinese orchestra playing all traditional Chinese instruments. So of course I had to go and chat to everyone. Well, I've now got some of these people who are going to be playing in the show for, in Borta because there is not a huge Kazakh population in Melbourne, obviously. In fact, it's very small, but there's a very large one. So there's an instrument called a Ruan, R-U-A-N. Closest thing I can say about it's like a banjo. But I was playing with a guy last week, and as soon as he started playing, I was trans. I was there. I was there in Central Asia. I was there in the Gobi Desert. I, it's like wow, it puts you right there. There is a violin you might have seen a Chinese violin. It's got two strings, and they play it on your leg, yeah. And it's called uh, Eru, E H R U. We've got one of those in the show. So all this stuff, I love. I love. Love it. Look, there is only one Warren Wills. Mm. There can only ever be one Warren Wills. Mm. But if you're listening and you've gotten anything out of this wonderful chat mm. that Warren has so generously favoured us with, find something that makes you as passionate as Absolutely. Warren is. Whatever it is, it doesn't have to be music. No. It can be flowers or reading or whatever it is. Mum and I are watching Jeopardy at the moment. Right. There's some kid that's been on for two straight months. He's mm. won over a million. Wow. His knowledge base is absolutely unbelievable. He has a passion. Find your passion. May not do it the first time. Have a go at two or three different things. Absolutely. Things that you may never have tried before. Mm. But have a go and find something that you can get really excited about even if it's only for a week or a month, and then find something else if you lose the passion. But passion is what makes life really worthwhile. And you know what, I gotta tell you a story, I might have told you this before, but I love this story, and it's, it's about exuberance and youth. And a dear friend of mine who passed away many years ago, his name was Albert Van Damme, eccentric inventor, composer, extraordinary Dutchman, was best friends with Salvador Dali. They were invited to go to the opening, in, I think it was 1926, I think so. And anyway, it was in a salon in Paris. And the elder and great Maurice Ravel was there. And he was presenting the world premiere of his new work. And he came and he said, ladies and gentlemen, today I am going to play the world premiere of my new work. It is actually written for orchestra, but today in the salon I played on the piano. The piece was Bolero, right? And he put the lid of the piano down, wow. and a male dancer came out, stripped off naked, got on top of the piano, and danced naked while Ravel did the world premiere of Bolero. And Albert looked at me and said, and you know, the kids of today, they think they're so decadent. <laughs> <laughs> it's right. I so, love it. Thank you so much, Warren. You've great been pleasure. Delightful as usual, and I look forward to uh, having you on the show again. I know there's always so much to, to talk to you about. Bravo. Thank you, Lily. Thank you.